Well, this last spring, Pastor Heinemann and my wife and I, accompanied with a lot of the other ministers in the Carolina Conference, had the opportunity to go to what is referred to as the Holy Land. While we were there, we saw many sites. My favorite are always the natural sites that are probably very similar to how they were in Jesus' time, and there are a few of those. Most sites are not that way. Those of you that have been there, you understand how this oftentimes can go. It'll be a mosque or a church or multiple things fighting over exactly the spot. And they all claim the location and so on and so forth. And it's very hard to pinpoint and know for certain, is this the exact place or not? And really, that was not our purpose. And it doesn't need to be known exactly, was this the pebble or the stone or whatever, what have you. But just to be walking in the footsteps of Jesus is remarkable. But this place here, some of you have been here and recognize it. One of two sites that's a little bit debated, but most people agree that this is more than likely where Jesus was crucified and just a few feet from there was buried in a tomb. And you can't hardly see any semblance of that anymore. In fact, the the tomb has been carved out on all sides and now looks more like a room than a tomb. But the idea is still this is where it took place. And again, whether it was there or not, It doesn't so much matter, but the fact, as I share with you some time ago, for me, just knowing I was in the general vicinity of where this happened, you know, the the eyes of the universe, I should say, were being gazed upon this spot as Jesus died. Well, for sake of illustration, and for those that have been there, you'll notice there's this ladder, and you walk in this bottom portion here, and you wander around. It's always very crowded from dawn to dusk. There's all different groups that claim this spot, and this ladder has been there for quite some time. Church of the Holy Sepulchre is shared by the Armenians, the Greeks, the Copts, the Roman Catholics, the Ethiopians, the Syrians, and the Muslims. They all claim this holy site. So this ladder, located on a ledge above the main entrance, it's believed that it was placed there sometime in the 1800s. One story is that an Armenian, there were some Armenian monks who were locked inside, and so somebody put the ladder to help them out, and it stayed there, and it has remained there until this day for the very simple reason, no one can be certain or be sure which group was the one that put the ladder up, who's responsible for taking the ladder down, and so the ladder simply remains to be there. For over a hundred years now, the ladder is there, because they're wondering and arguing who has the jurisdiction to remove it. You may say, well, that's a little bit over the top, but there in Jerusalem, arguments as what I would consider as minimal as these can escalate virtually overnight or even in the midst of while you're there at the Wailing Wall, wherever it might be. Our tour guide said, you know, without any warning, they could just shut everything down. There could be some protests. Uh, Just after we left, there was some of that. But even here at this site in November 2008, the internet was flooded with videos, and you can still find them on YouTube, of a fist fight between Arminian and Greek monks. And what were they fighting over? Well, a small section of the roof of the church is disputed between the Copts and the Ethiopians. So at least one Coptic monk at any given time sits there in a chair to kind of guard this area that they call their own. And on a particular summer day, in no, well, it wasn't summer day, a hot day, they moved the chair just eight inches to try and get more in the shade. You get the picture, monk on the roof, guarding his area, moves the chair over eight inches. This was interpreted as hostile act and a violation of status quo. By the time it was all over, 11 were hospitalized after a fight resulting from this provocation. Interesting. This morning, we are talking about conflict. Is there ever conflict in the church? Is there ever conflict in this church? It's with a bit of embarrassment that I share with you that this week, coming into the office... 
Pastor Hyman was upset. Well, first I was upset because he was in my parking space and he, he responded by saying, well, I was there first. And then it was a little bit of nah and yaha. And I told him he had an ugly face and he proceeded to push me and the pushing went back and forth. I tried to grab his hair, but I couldn't get enough. He ended up in a headlock. We went out the door and I pushed him down the bank into the bushes and he got all scratched up, but you can't see it today because he's in his suit. Where's Pastor Hyman? Is that true? Not quite. Don't listen to his version of the story. Conflict. Does conflict take place within the church? And if so, is there a way that Christians should deal with conflict in a way that is different than everybody and anybody else deals with conflict? Are we held to a higher standard when it comes to conflict? Others might say, conflict is the reason I'm not part of church. I have enough, you know, in my own life. I don't need to go to church and be arguing and backbiting and all of the rest. I don't need that. There's just too much conflict in the church. Well, is there ever any conflict in your family? Is there ever conflict in your home? Is there ever conflict in your marriage? Are there ever issues that need to be discussed? Things that need to be resolved, not just within your home, but even at work and outside. So really the question is not, does conflict exist? The question is, what do we do with conflict? I mean, there's a room here full of many people, and I would be very surprised if we always agree on everything. My grandmother had a a phrase or a saying. She says, if two people always agree, one is not needed. (laughs) But not everybody always agrees on how we should do church, what it should look like, what the song should be. Needs to be more uplifting. That's too uplifting. The color needs to be brighter. No, the color's too bright. You know, any number of things. I find myself chuckling at times when I sit on various meetings and committees down over the years as we spend time arguing who's going to change the batteries in the clock and whose job it is. And, you know, really? (laughs) This morning in our series on Paul, we find ourselves in Acts chapter 15. We find the church, not so much individuals, but larger than that, the church in conflict. So if you brought your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 15, where we're going to do our best to seek out how this early church, as we often refer to it, dealt with conflict. So in Acts chapter 15, beginning in verse 1, and it says, And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, the members, if you will, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. This is really referring to, if we can just pause right there and go back, I put this on the screen, Exodus chapter 12, verse 43, it says, And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the ordinance of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat it, but every man's servant who is bought for money, when you have circumcised him, then he may eat. Yet word is getting out that this is not taking place, this is not happening, and so people are starting to feel upset. You'll recall circumcision was an outward sign of a heart condition. God had made a covenant with Abraham. And you may recall, Abraham tried to fulfill the promise on his own. So God gave to Abraham a sign, which would cause him to think and remember of his attempt to work out the promise of God and his failure. It didn't give him anything, but rather it was a constant reminder that he could not do anything in and of himself and that everything was to be done in and for him by the Lord. This promise of sand of the seas and stars in the air, you're not going to to make this happen, Abraham. I will do this. So did God fulfill his promise to Abraham? 
Yes, he did. Did he raise up a great nation? Yes, God did. Did they keep Passover and all the ceremonial laws? Yes, they did. Did it become part of their identity as a Jewish nation? Yes, it did. But did they lose the point of these ceremonies? Yes, they did. And when the ultimate fulfillment of the sanctuary, of Passover, of the feast days, when the embodiment came in the form of Jesus, did they recognize him? Another verse I want to read here, Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many, excuse me, for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offerings. But as a whole, the Jewish nation missed it. They didn't see Jesus as the son of God. They didn't see him as a fulfillment of prophecy, but instead they hated Jesus and they successfully sought his death, didn't they? And they hung him on a tree. And so after his death and resurrection, God helps Paul and others see that Jesus was in fact the fulfillment. He was the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And so now everything that they know to be is changing. I imagine the Jewish nation, like many of us in this room, we're not so comfortable with change. We've always done it this way. Our fathers did it this way. Our grandfathers did it this way. It was so important to them, held in such high regard. And this was their identity. I imagine many of them living very close to the Temple Mount, seeing it every single day. The customs of Judaism, of Passover, of sacrifice, they were ingrained in who they were. And now you're telling me, and now you're telling us it's no longer needed. We should just close up shop. I mean, this Jesus that was born to simple parents makes all this void. I mean, it's incredible structure that we have. It's enormous. It's huge. It's breathtaking. And now you say it's been fulfilled. It's done. And so I imagine some of these radicals, like Paul and Barnabas, as they are seen as radicals, are saying things like all of the sacrifices and offerings have been fulfilled in Christ. Their new identity is in Christ. So Paul and Barnabas, remember, they made that first missionary journey. They come back to Antioch where the work with the Gentiles really took off, where there was a great revival there with the Gentiles, where scripture tells us they were first called Christians there in Antioch. It's in this place that certain men are teaching counter to what Paul and Barnabas are teaching. So we continue on verse 2. In Acts chapter 15, therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. Paul at this point did not say, fine, I'm going to start my own church. You all are in apostasy. You haven't followed the the biblical mandates or whatever it might be. He doesn't start some reform movement. No, he says, let's gather the world church together and let's hammer this out. Let's solve this once and for all. And many refer to this as the first general conference session where delegates from around the world would travel and come, perhaps by invitation, come to the Jerusalem council. Your attendance is needed. We want you to be part in making a decision on this most important matter. So continuing on, verse six, now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, men and brethren, you know that a good while ago, God chose among us that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Pause right there. Commentators agree. Peter is referencing the vision God gave him in Acts chapter 10. 
You remember the sheet coming down with all kinds of unclean animals? And then God says, rise up and eat. And he says, no, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is unclean. And as the story unfolds, Peter begins to understand this is not talking about rat sandwiches. This is talking about no man, no Gentile should be considered unclean because the gospel is now going to go forward to all. Acts 10, 34 and 35. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, in truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. No partiality. This is in context of salvation. He's saying the doors are wide open. Anybody can come in. That's what he came to understand as a result of his vision. And if we were to continue on to verse 36, it says that Jesus is Lord of all. I imagine for all of us here that aren't Jewish, that's good news. And so Peter raises up or rises up and he says, men and brethren, you know that a good while ago, God chose among us that by my mouth, we could say by my vision, by the revelation Jesus gave to me, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Continuing verse eight. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledge them, the Gentiles, by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Verse 12, then all the multitudes kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. Let us tell you some stories from our first missionary journey of how God is working through this, quote, heathen people, how they're being filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 13, and after they had become silent, James, he's going to stand up and say a few words. He answered saying, men and brethren, listen to me. Simon, or we could say Simon Peter, has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. Then verse 16, he's quoting scripture, Amos 9, 11 and 12. After this, I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins. I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does all these things. So conflict in the church. How did the church reach a conclusion? Well, there's several things that the church did. First off, We find doctrinal confusion, all studying scripture, all coming to different conclusions. That's where we find it. Then the church decides, let's come together. Let's gather in Jerusalem. Let's have our meeting. Peter says, I was shown in vision. Peter, Paul, and Barnabas speak of their experience that they're having out in the field. And then James says, scripture agrees with the vision, with their experience. And he makes his conclusion, which we haven't read just yet. Those are important steps within the body of the church to come to a conclusion. So they all come together. They all discuss, they dispute. And Peter raises up and he says, I saw in vision. Notice Peter's not citing scripture, but his vision. Then Paul and Barnabas get up and say, our experience confirms his vision. Then James stands up and takes Peter's vision and the word. And he says, it all agrees and makes his conclusion. This I would propose to you is the Bible account of coming to a doctrinal conclusion on a matter. I hear many today say in regards to Ellen White, no, she can't have any say in the formation of doctrine. But my question is, are they being biblical? To which I would respond, no, they're being profoundly unbiblical. The scripture example is the Bible, 
the gift of prophecy, be it visions of his prophets and their experience. And the conclusion is it all agrees. I mean, let's stop and think. Jeremiah's writings affected the way God's people understood the word, didn't they? Paul himself was inspired by the Holy Spirit and it influenced their understanding of the word. But while it influences the understanding of scripture, never does it contradict scripture. So in Paul's day, yes, go by scripture. But Paul, like Jeremiah, influenced the understanding of scripture. In Paul's day, Paul wasn't in the Bible, was he? And they could have said, we don't need you, Paul. We don't want another prophet. We have the Bible. Could they have said that in Paul's day? And my question is, if they had said that, would they have been doing God's will? I don't think so. Because God raised up Paul and gave him a message for his people. And that message influenced their present understanding of Scripture. And so in Acts 15, with Scripture, with the spirit of prophecy, with their experience, they all put those together. They say they all agree and they come to a conclusion. And what's the conclusion? Let's read about it. Verse 19. Therefore, I judge says James, that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to do a few things. Abstain from things polluted by idols. Abstain from sexual immorality. Abstain from things strangled and from blood. Then they sent the letter to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas and others. And how did Paul respond to the conclusion? Skip with me to verse 31. You can read the whole thing later this afternoon if you'd like. It's a little bit repetitive in parts, but in verse 31, it says when they had read it, this is when they take the letter back up to Antioch and say, this was the conclusion of the matter. They rejoiced over its encouragement. And then verse 35, Paul and Barnabas also remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. The church received the decision made by the Jerusalem council and they moved forward in mission. Friends, there are times that you may not agree with a decision that the church makes. But at the end of the day, we have to recognize the church is not about me and it's not about my cherished opinions, is it? Rather, it's about God leading his collective body forward in the work. So the church board or church business meeting may make a decision that I don't agree with. It's happened before and it will happen again, right? They make a decision that I don't agree with. And I might think it's a wrong decision. And in that mean, I have made my stand. I've made my appeal. I wanted people to side with me. And then the vote was taken and I was voted down. Ouch. But friends, when I leave that meeting, it's not this person said this and that person said that. And my argument was this. No, when we leave the meeting, the Christian response is to say, this is what the church decided. We're going to have hot pink pews. This is what the church decided. You don't say, I was totally against it and this person was for it and because this and this and those comments, we need to get them. Yeah, you get the toilet paper. We'll go over there at house at night and we'll do the whole place up really well. That'll show them. Is that how the church handles conflict? I hope not. We have to leave our own opinions aside and move forward with the mission of the church. So we've looked at how the church reached a conclusion. How did Paul respond to the conclusion? You could say, well, that was easy. That was what he wanted in the first place. Okay. But I would say those that didn't like, they were obviously those opposed to that idea and the ruling, if you will, or the the consensus that was brought before everyone. Somebody was against it. Somebody was not happy. But I would hope they'd be mature enough to say, we've been searching the scriptures. 
We've been searching through the spirit of prophecy and the visions that have been had. And we listened to people's experience. We prayed that God would guide us. And this was the conclusion. And so even though it's not what I would have thought the way things would have gone, I'm going to go forward in mission. We could say the voice of God through his church has spoken. But lastly, what should we do when people rebel against the conclusion? Now, this is a little bit of a tricky one because I think the devil can distract us from mission by becoming so engrossed in correcting the errors of others And we have counsel that the wheat and the tares, they will grow together until when? The harvest. And who's in charge of the harvest? God's in charge of the harvest. So we know there's going to be wheat and tares among. There's going to be good and bad among. There's going to be the sheep and the goats. But friends, I believe there's still a time to hold people accountable to the collective decision of the church. And you might say, well, where's a biblical example of that? Well, I'm glad you asked. Turn with me, if you will, to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 to 13. Here Paul is writing, and we're looking at what do we do when people buck against the conclusion of the larger group. And I don't imagine that Paul took everybody to task, but I imagine he had a a better relationship with Peter, perhaps. But whatever the case, we read there in Galatians chapter 2, beginning verse 11. Now, when Peter had come to Antioch, Paul says, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. I mean, that's what was decided, right? We're all one in Christ. So he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, these certain men, I imagine these certain men are the ones opposed to the decision that was just made, however long ago that it was. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. So the church had spoken. Some obviously didn't like the decision. They were bucking the decision, I would imagine. And Peter's eating with Gentiles until these men show up. And so he withdraws. He separates himself from the Gentiles over peer pressure because of the influence of those that didn't agree. And Peter plays the hypocrite and Paul calls him out. And some here may be quick to say, you know, we don't follow creeds of the church. We must follow our conscience and do what we feel is right. But friends, we're not talking about a heady church where one dictates what's to be done. Ironically, the Roman Catholic Church, for instance, believes that Peter was the first pope. You heard that before. And that popes are infallible. But notice that Peter's not the one that comes to the conclusion in Acts 15. It's James. And notice that it's Peter here in Galatians chapter 2 that is rebuked for playing the hypocrite. And so, no, we're not talking about a few. We're not talking about a pope, a ruling power of just a handful. But we're talking about apostles, elders, representatives from various parts of the world field. And they're studying scripture. They're studying spirit of prophecy. They're evaluating that with the experiences they've had in the field. And they prayerfully come to a conclusion under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And so when the process is followed, when there's been intense Bible study, when they've studied the gift of prophecy, when they hear the experience of others, and when collectively the body says they all agree, then I need to be supportive of the decision, regardless, again, of my cherished opinions. And so here we have an example of Paul calling Peter to accountability over what the decision was at the Jerusalem council. We've been going through last day events in our prayer meeting, and there's some Interesting quotations there in chapter 4. If you haven't read it recently and haven't been going to that book, I would encourage you to pick up a copy and look at it. But chapter 4, it says, Some have advanced the thought that as we near the close of time, every child of God will act how? 
independently of any religious organization, but I have been instructed. She could have said, I have been shown, right? Like Peter did by the Lord that in this work, there is no such thing as every man's being independent. We work together as a body collectively. It is true that there is strength and safety in numbers. That's not to say that numbers can't get it wrong. But if the the whole world church has gathered together and made a decision on something, maybe for the third time, and I still decide I am right, I worry about that. Here's another quotation. God has invested his church with special authority and power, which no one can be justified in disregarding and despising. For in so doing, he despises what? Whoa, the voice of God? I mean, we have that in Matthew 18 too, don't we? Whatever is bound on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever is loosed on earth will be loosed in heaven. God often speaks through his church. Have we seen that abused? Absolutely we have. But just because there's a counterfeit doesn't mean there's not a genuine. And so when the collective body goes through the proper process and makes a decision, God's in it. And we need to say, okay, and get back to our mission. Did I miss one here? Here's one. I I think I skipped over it. God has ordained that the representatives of his church from all parts of the earth, when assembled in a general conference, shall have authority. The error that some are in danger of committing is in giving to the mind and judgment of one man or of a small group of men the full measure of authority and influence. Enough said. Friends, at times there's conflict in the church. And yes, that's not a bad thing. It just depends on how we respond to conflict. Conflict that drives us to our knees, that drives us back to scripture, that causes us to to search through the spirit of prophecy, to humbly listen to the experience of others and come together and ask for the Lord's leading. When handled in that way, conflict can be beneficial. Conflict can be a blessing. In fact, conflict can move the mission of the church forward. And when we accept the outcome of the church board or the church business meeting or the constituency session at the local conference or union or division, When the world church comes together, what we call a general conference session, friends, we need to trust the outcome and move forward in mission. And at times, as we see Paul doing, hold people accountable to the decision reached through God's leading of his people. And we must ultimately remember and recognize that I'm not in control of God's church and neither are you. I'm not the head and neither are you. God is in control of his church and it is his work. And so I do all that I can to influence the sphere in which that he's given to me. I do all that I can to be faithful to the Bible, to the spirit of prophecy, to be prayerful, to be humble. But at the end of the day, the outcome is not about me. It's about trusting that God has it all under control. Romans 9 verse 28, for he, speaking of the Lord, for he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness. It doesn't say, and David will finish the work. It doesn't say you'll finish the work or you'll finish the work. It says he'll finish the work. And so when I see something happening over here and it troubles me, I say, Lord, I don't know how I can influence that situation. If there's something I can do, please show me what I can do. But if I can't do anything from way over here, I'm just going to pray and ask that you will continue to be in control and trust that you are. Oh, I had one more. Sorry. There is no need to doubt to be fearful that the work will not succeed. God is at the head of the work and he will set everything in order. It doesn't say a few things, everything. He's at the head. If matters need adjusting at the head of the work, God will attend to that and work to right every wrong. Let us have faith that God is going to carry the noble ship, which bears the people of God safely into port. Do you believe that? Does that give you assurance today? I believe God's at the head of the work, that he will finish the work. And so if there's conflict in the church, 
I just have to ask you, is there conflict in the church that is too big for God to overcome? If matters need adjusting at the head of the work, do you believe God's in control of that too? And if we do, we don't have to fear. We don't have to stress. We don't have to strategize. We don't have to have backroom meetings. We can trust that God is faithful and that he will finish the work and bring the ship, the Seventh-day Adventist church, safely into port. Last verse, Jeremiah 1 verse 19. Young man, teenager, maybe barely a teenager, called to be a mouthpiece for God. And in the midst of that calling, chapter 1 of Jeremiah, verse 19, God says, they will fight against you, Jeremiah. There will be conflict. You can count on that. You read through the book and boy, was there conflict. It says they will fight against you, but they will not prevail against you. Why? For I'm with you, says the Lord, to deliver you. Friends, conflict is inevitable. As long as we're on this planet, there will be conflict. But the Christian should respond differently. And even though conflict in the church is inevitable, this verse reminds me that defeat is impossible because our alliance is invincible. Despite the challenges and conflicts we face, we can be of good courage because God promises to be with us and he will deliver us. We simply need to trust and obey. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are at the head of this work. We recognize that the church, as enfeebled and backwards as it can be at times, is still the apple of your eye. That your children are here in your church and that you long to reveal yourself through these, your people, around the world. Lord, I pray that we will trust you to be the head of the work, that we will trust that you will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness according to your will and your plan, and that our role is simply to trust and obey is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.